Okay, now <clears throat> we're going to switch gears here because the the tenth of Tevet, the fast day, which is this Thursday, obviously is is very connected to all these different symbols that we've been talking about this month. Um, <clears throat> so we, we want to understand it from a number of different angles. So first of all. I made the statement that, in a sense, the tenth of Tevet is the is the most important of the fast days, <coughs> and we have a hint of this in halacha. The halacha says that if the tenth of Tevet comes out on Shabbat, you fast; it overrides Shabbat. There's only one other day in the year that a fast day overrides Shabbat, and that is Yom Kippur. If Yom Kippur comes out on the Shabbat, <coughs> we fast. If Tisha B'Av comes out on Shabbat, which it does often, it's put off until Sunday. If the Yud Zayin B'Tamuz and some Gedalia come out on a Shabbos, and it does fairly often, you push it off not the tenth of Tevet. Now the only thing is that when they set the calendar they arranged it in a way that it will never come out on Shabbat. But before they arranged the, the calendar it could have come out on Shabbat. And they learned this from a, a, a connection to Yom Kippur. By Yom Kippur three times I believe, three times it says that you have to afflict your soul on this very day. And it says it three times. <clears throat> From that they learn is it has to be on the day of the 10th of Tishrei. So that we learn that, uh, that Yom Kippur overrides Shabbat. In the book of Yechezkel, and I, I you have to pardon me that I don't have the exact chapter and verse, <clears throat> but he mentions the tenth of Tevet as when he, when <clears throat> the Babylonians first began the siege of Jerusalem, and in in in, in one pasuk two times he says be'etzem hayom hazem, and from that. The sages learned that just like Yom Kippur overrides Shabbat because of these words, so does the tenth of Tevet. <coughs> but there's another reason is that <coughs> in the book of Zechariah, so it's, it, it mentions all four fasts in one verse, and it said that the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth. <clears throat> the fourth is the month of Tammuz, Yudzayim Tammuz. The fifth is Tisha B'av, the ninth of Av. The seventh is Som Gedalia. And the tenth is the tenth of Tevin. And then he continues and, and says <clears throat> that in the future, these will all be turned into days of, of feasting and joy. So that's what Zechariah says. But that's, 
our, our, our source for these four fast days. The, the, it's in one, one verse. Yeah. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> but we have another reason. We have another reason is that chronologically, the tenth of Tevet is the, is the first fast because chronologically, first the siege begins, then the walls are breached. So now there's the first one is the tenth of Tevet. Chronologically, that is the first fast day that was set for the eventual destruction of the temple. And then Yud Zayimatamos is when the walls were breached, meaning that the, the, <clears throat> the war was like really happening very strong. Tishabav, of course, is when the temple is actually destroyed, the ninth and really the tenth. Thank you very much. And the Som Gedalia is after the temple was destroyed. So Gedalia was uh, appointed as the governor of Yehuda. And then he was assassinated. And with that assassination, pretty much ended Jewish sovereignty until we came back. But at the time, who knew when we would come back? The Jews were already taken into exile. A very high percentage of the Jews were killed. And so when he was assassinated, it was like, like this is the end. That's him. Because many people ask, of all of the tragedies that have happened in Jewish history, why make a whole fast day for the assassination of one person? Because you have to understand the context when he was assassinated, just like, it just came into my head, but <clears throat> the factors leading to World War I were building for years, decades. But it was the assassination of, what was it, the, yeah, of, of Austria, that just all the cards just, everything fell apart, and within a short time began World War I. So the, the, the killing of Gedalia was like that. It just represented like this is the end. Like this is the end of Jewish sovereignty. So, so I'm pointing out why the Tenth of Tevet is so important. Because it's equated with Yom Kippur, but it's the first one. It's the beginning. And in the Gomorrah, there are two expressions in, in different places. One says everything goes after the beginning. Another one says everything goes after the end. And of course they're both true. The way you begin something is like critical. That's the expression, you know, just to get off on the right foot. The way something starts, that energy, that and many times determines that if you'll finish even. And the other one is the way that you finish something, that is the final Product. And in fact, that's brought in a disagreement as to where, to who has more merit, one making a blessing or one saying amen. 
One's beginning like the mitzvah, and the other one is ending the mitzvah. There's actually a, a, a very interesting di- disagreement. Which is more meritorious? To be the one saying the blessing or the one who's saying amen to the blessing? So since the tenth of Tevet um, signifies the beginning of the destruction of the first temple, it's the, it is the beginning and it has a, a status of its own. And I, and I think other than the fact that that it and Yom Kippur share the same words, I think that's really why they gave it a special koach, that if it came out in Shabbos, you still fast, because that was the first. That was the beginning of the destruction. <clears throat> now, we're, we're told another reason, and that reason is that that was the day that the 70 sages who were forced by the Greeks to translate the Torah, they finished their um, translation. And some people say that is the reason, or an additional reason, and because it happened later, but it's an additional reason for calling it a fast day. And we, we need to expl- understand that a little bit because <clears throat> there's a big question here. When in the book of Devarim, so God tells Moshe, when B'nai Yisrael comes into the land of Israel, <clears throat> you should put up 12 huge stones and you should write the Torah in 70 languages. You should translate the Torah into 70 languages. And we're told that Yehoshua did this. So the question is, so what's the big deal that we translated the Torah to Greek? If already we have this um, uh, uh, directive from God that the Torah should be translated so everyone knows what's in it, so what's the problem with Greek, with, with Greek doing it? <clears throat> in fact, wouldn't we want this? Because at that time, the Greeks were the greatest empire the world had ever known to that point. They had conquered more territory than any um, kingdom had ever conquered. So you might think, well, that's a good thing. So this is, is connected to two things. And one is like this, is that with the destruction of the first temple, this is a very, very important point that many people don't really think about or realize. When Shlomo HaMelech was dedicating the first temple, so in the book of Malachim, it's recorded his, his speeches, his exact words. And he gave this long, um, it's, it's a, he was praying to God how he should bless the people of Israel. Very, very beautiful. You can, you can find it in the book of Malachim. And then he addresses the nations of the world. And he says to God, he says, just like Jews will come to this house and will offer up sacrifices and prayers, and we hope you will listen to it. Also, people who come from 
around the world who come to this place to give honor to your name, please listen to what they say and grant their requests so they will know your, your greatness. <clears throat> we know that the mission of Avram was to turn the whole world out to God, one God. That was Avram and Sarah's mission, and it is still our mission to this day. That is the mission of the Jewish people. Yeshiau called it Or Goyim, to be a light to the nations. <clears throat> that is what we usually quote today, that we are meant to be a light to the nations. I've heard many, many politicians on every spectrum, from the left to the right, quote that for different reasons, different motivations. But it's part of Jewish consciousness that this is the role of the Jewish people, to be a light unto the nations. <clears throat> The first temple, and this is what many people don't realize, the first temple was meant to realize that. It says about Shlomo that people came from all over the world to, to see his wisdom, to experience his wisdom. And at that time, people came from all over the world to offer Sacrifice. That was the purpose. That, just like we're told that the third temple would be, a, it's called, uh, God says, it's, it's my house of, house of my prayer for all nations. That is our vision, that the third temple will be the uniting, on the physical plane, that which will unite all humanity. Because the third temple is connected to Mashiach. And there really will not be peace in the world until the Messianic era. And we're told that along with the Mashiach being the great redeemer of the Jewish people, he will teach the whole world and bring the whole world together in the knowledge of God. This is all of the prophecies say the same thing, <clears throat> all the prophecies. So, now to put this in context, the destruction of the first temple, which begins on the 10th of Tevin, symbolizes, in a sense, the, the end of that dream until the Messianic era. And many people don't think of it this way. <clears throat> But the destruction of the first temple, after that, Israel for, for good reason. We've been fighting for our mere survival ever since. Ever since. Uh, because that began the first of the exiles. And <clears throat> since then, a majority of Jews have lived out, outside of Israel. And, and what they're saying now is that within 10 to 20 years, maybe even less, it will be the first time since the destruction of the first temple that a majority of Jews will be living in Israel. And everyone says that not just, not just uh, physically, materially, but spiritually and mystically, this, this will be a watershed 
in all of Jewish history. Because there's, this, there's a certain koach, even a halachic koach, when a majority of Jews are living in Israel, it's different when a majority of Jews are living outside of Israel. But with the destruction of the temple, which again begins really on the 10th of Tevet, begins the exile. And it begins the end of this dream of bringing the whole world together that didn't, it didn't, it didn't succeed at the time. So what was in the second temple? The second temple the second temple was very different because, according to the Talmud, it did not have the, the presence of the Shekhinah. And it did not have the Aron HaKodesh. Um, and it didn't have the original menorah. All of these things were hidden away right before the Babylonians took over the town. And they are still buried away. And according to tradition, they will be found. They will be found. And then there's, you know, in search of the lost you know, Ark, um, but it's based on the idea that the sages said it was hidden away, and according to tradition, it's really under the Temple Mount, even though there's many other theories and ideas. <clears throat> but the Second Temple was very, very different. We're told that in the beginning, it, it wasn't such a beautiful temple, but, but Herod, made it into also a magnificent um, temple, but it was missing the heart and, and soul. So the Goyim didn't, didn't come to those second? No, they did. But it, 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 it just qualitatively, it still brought Jews together. In fact, the whole story <clears throat> of how the second temple was destroyed is the Caesar was convinced to, to send an offering, and he says, you'll see that the Jews will, will puzzle it. And that's what they think about you, because they're planning to rebel against you. So even at the second temple, yes, it was, a, it, it was not an uncommon thing. It was not an uncommon thing. But that's one of the meanings of the Tenth of Tevet, is that like it ends the, the dream until Mashiach, until Mashiach, Bezrat Hashem, we're we're getting there. Now, just to go back about the translating, because that's brought as one of the reasons for the fast day, that, that the Torah was translated. We, we posed a question, like, what, what's so bad about that? Moshe Rabbeinu was directed in 70 languages because the purpose of the Torah was to be spread to the whole world. And here I'll put in another thing, is that according to Jewish tradition, Yeshu is born in the ninth of Tevin, not on Christmas, on the ninth of Tevet. This is our tradition, that he was born in the ninth of Tevet. <clears throat> it's not that known, but it's explained. There are many different, even, in, even among Christians in Israel, I think they have three different Christmases. The Greek Orthodox have one date, the Roman Catholics have a different date, and the Greek Orthodox have a different date. They're all within, I think, a month of each other. They're all within a month. The others, I think, are in January. <clears throat> but according to our tradition, it's the 9th of Tevet. Any of those January, December dates could have been the 9th of Tevet. Could have been, yes. 
Yes, could have been. Could have been. But most people hold that that date was chosen because of its proximity to the, to the winter solstice. And the winter solstice was a huge, huge pagan holiday all over the world. And that, uh, if you know the history of, of Christmas, many of the symbols of Christianity are adopted from different pagan holidays in order to incorporate as many people into Christianity as possible. That's a whole other subject. So <clears throat> let's get back to the translation here. So, so this is connected. This is, this is a Torah from Rav Ginsburg, and I just never even thought of it, <clears throat> but it's, it's very, very fascinating. Is Hebrew and other Semitic languages are written from right to left. Greek and virtually all Western languages that come from Greek and Latin are written, of course, from left to right. That's why we read in English from left to right, and Hebrew is from right to left. The way you open a book is completely different. <clears throat> so Rob Ginsburg explained um, a little bit Kabbalistically what this means. <clears throat> when you look at the spherot, the right column of the spherot, the highest one is Chachma, wisdom, and the highest on the left side is Bina. And the Zohar says that Chachma and Bina are like two beloveds that never part from each other. Meaning, Chachma needs Bina, and Bina needs Chachma. And in the language of the Zohar, it's called Abba and Ima. <laughs> Abba and Ima. And when it says two, two beloveds, it's more like two um, intimate beloveds. It's Abba and Ima. So what's the significance that we go from right to left, and they go from left to right? So, he, so Rav Ginsburg explains that Chachma, which we translate as of wisdom, is really coming, it's coming above natural intellect. It's learning to be a open vessel, a channel, for a higher type of wisdom. So our belief is that it's Torah Mina Shemayim. And it comes from above, comes from Chachma. In fact, that's what it says in Devarim. Um, when it says H dat lamo, a fiery law, it says it comes from God's right hand. The Torah comes from his right hand <clears throat> in Zota Bracha. So our, the way we learn Torah and live our lives is based on Chachma being brought into Bina. Bina's analytical type of intellect. 
And it's called, bin is called in the, in the, in the Talmud, lahavin devar betoch devar. The Talmud is the epitome of, of Bina. It's analyzing every, every letter of the Torah to get out of it its full and deepest meaning. Chachma is more like uh, lightning flashes of wisdom. So why, why did the sages feel it, the translating into Greek? It wasn't the translation per se. It was what they wanted to do with it. They wanted to take this translation and have it go from Bina to Chachma. That, that the Torah is based in human intellect. It's an amazing document. But it's, it's based in human intellect. And if we can get some flashes of insight of Chachma from it, good. But that's not what it is. It's human intellect. Obviously, many um, what are called um, Bible critics, that's how they see the Torah. What a great, what great literature. Even inspired literature. But literature. They don't see it. Torah mina <clears throat> So that's what the Greeks wanted to do with it. Now Rambam, so when he discusses Christianity and Islam, so he and he suffered tremendously under Islam. He had a he had to flee Spain. He was born in Spain. He had to flee his family for their life. And his life in Egypt was was very, very difficult. But, um, like Jews did in every generation, they, we persevered. But he said, he said, it's, we'll call it a strange type of divine providence. He said, with all of the, of the negative experience that we had with Christianity and Islam, they performed a great service because they both took the Torah and they, in their own way, spread it to the whole world. And he says that when Mashiach comes, people will understand the concepts that he will teach because they've been exposed to it. Now, we didn't, that's the whole thing that we're trying to say, that we didn't succeed in, in spreading it to the whole world. But fortunately and unfortunately, Christianity took the concepts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Koran is so highly influenced by the Torah. And they spread these concepts to the world. In principle, teaching the, the, the whole world the principles of Torah, is that's our original mission is to spread this knowledge of the whole world so everyone will accept God, will become a global village, a brotherhood, and in this case, a sisterhood of humanity. That is what, that, that's the Messianic era. So Rav Ginsburg had a, an amazing insight, and it's part of a much longer thing, so I'm only taking it out of context. He says, isn't it interesting that after saying what we just did, wouldn't you think that we would light the menorah 
from right to left. But how do we do it? Every new candle is from left to right. So he said, what, what this means is that in a sense, in principle, we, we need to learn to spread the Torah to the whole world. We have to find a way to translate. Um, and I'm speaking of someone who's been working in Jewish education for 40 years now, Kirov. That's the whole thing of Kirov, is trying to find a language to translate Torah into a language that people can get excited about. Have an entry point. Have like something that will bring them in. <clears throat> so he said, um, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but in Hanukkah, we, we say five different things with the language of umesarta giborim biad chalashim. Rabim biad mesarta. Rabim biad ma'atim. Tameim biad taharim. Rashaim biad sadikim. Zaydin Oskei Torah So each one of them, he explains <clears throat> how we have to take. God gave it over into our hands. He gave the many over to the hands of the few. So it has a simple meaning, but on a deeper meaning, it's like <clears throat> we're like the ma'at of all the people, the, the the littlest of all the people. The Torah says that our land is the smallest, and population were the smallest. He said, but there's, there is something about being the Rabim, of, being ta of taking the concept of being the Rabim and giving it into the context of the few. So that's what he said, that the Zaydim you, you gave over to the, those who, who are involved in your Torah, so that's what he related to this, the whole idea of translating, is that we actually light the candles from left to right, which is the opposite of everything we've been saying, of going from the right to the left. Because we have to take that energy and put it into the context of Torah. And that's why the bracha <coughs> that uh, Yafet got by Noah was that they should increase and dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, of course, Yafet, Greece comes from Yafet, and the word Yafet comes from Yafet. And so what we're told, and this is the, the last point I'll make, and then we'll, we'll close it, is there's an irony here, a tremendous irony. In Hanukkah, we celebrate the Jewish victory over the Greeks. Eight days later, we have a fast day where the Greeks made us translate the Torah into Greek. Western culture is basically Greek and Roman culture. The emphasis on beauty, on form, materialism, sports, theater, philosophy, 
art, all of these things is Greek and Roman culture. So what, did, what was the blessing that Yafet got? As long as it dwells in the tents of Shem, it's okay. Art is beautiful. Nothing wrong with sports and being fit. Nothing wrong with culture. Nothing wrong with being beautiful. Remember the whole idea of Hidur Mitzvah. Remember we learned this. Beautifying the Mitzvah. You might think, why do we emphasize beautiful? Isn't that Greek? Ah, but it's in the tents of Shem. So this idea of translating the Torah into Greek, the idea, if it's in the tents of Shem, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to take the Torah and translate it in a way that the world will understand. That's what we need to do. And hopefully that will bring the Messianic era a little bit closer. Amen.